Welcome to Project Recovery, a podcast about addiction. More importantly, it's about recovery. I'm Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. He's a clinical psychologist and a tad late today, bud. Yeah, a little bit. Well, I, I don't blame you because you're also a therapist. Uh, you work up at the university. Uh, you've got a lot. You got a lot of a lot of plates in the air, if you will. Yeah, I do a few different jobs. But I think people think I'm just a therapist, which is the majority of what I do and what I love to do. But uh-huh. uh, today, I walked out of my last therapy appointment this morning and getting ready to go. Uh, you know, come here and got you know reminded of some letters that people needed me to write for them, and then. I had some academic stuff I was supposed to have signed up for that I didn't sign up for. And you know so what they call that? Got in the me biz? late. You know what they call that in the biz? Being late. Adulting. Adulting. I know. You're doing the adulting stuff. Yeah. You know, checking the boxes, crossing right. the T's, dotting the I's. I I usually am on top of things, but I I let a couple things slip, so that's, I had to take care of stuff. So but now I, it's all taken care of. I noticed something about my behavior, and uh, I, I think maybe I've always known this, but it was pointed out to this morning when I was working out at the gym. Right. It was a buy and try kind of day. Biceps, triceps. Okay. You know what I mean? A lot of curls. <laughs> I was wondering. Uh, yeah, yeah gotcha. it's a buy and try day. Buy and try, yep. And I'm sitting in there, and I'm doing the hammer curls, and that's these ones right here like this, right? Class, classic, right? And this Is that when the barbell's this way yep, instead yep, of that way? Yep. And you do it both ways because you want to get the cut in, in the oh, muscle. Oh, yeah. I got to um, get the cut. And I was doing that. Yeah. And this lady, yeah, she came up to me and she goes, and I go, I can't hear you. My earphones are in. And she goes, what are you listening to? <laughs> and I said, well, just a playlist. And she goes, I have noticed that every time I see you in the gym, you are dancing. And you are dancing like nobody's watching, but I'm here to tell you, I've been watching and you always put a smile on my face. Oh, and then I started nice. noticing it that I dance all the time. I dance by myself in the car. Yeah. One of the things me and my kids love to do is if we can pull up to a stoplight and turn up the music and start dancing, yeah. we'd like to see if we can get the car next to us dancing. Nice. And so, and, and I don't know what it is about me, but it just, it, it got that rhythm in you. It, but it makes me feel free and yeah. it, it, it can turn it around. And then it got me thinking about my recovery and how important music was to my recovery. Okay. I don't think we've talked about that. And, and, and I, I mean, my girlfriend said it last night. She goes, you know, we were talking about things that are really important to us. Mm-hmm. And uh, one of my top things is music. I Like we've had that, my son's into this game now where he goes, dad, would you rather? Would you rather? Yeah. You know, yep, he's like, yep. would you rather be blind or deaf? And I go, I'd rather be blind because I can listen to music. And, and then that's how and you get to have a cane and stuff. That's yeah. Cool. And yeah. I can smack you with it, son. Right. For changing the radio. <laughs> um, but I mean, that's how important music is to me. And yeah, I know. It's a huge part. Of I know life, we've yeah. talked about it before, but uh, when I was in rehab for 45 days, after you get done and you graduate, they mm-hmm. do a coining out ceremony. And so that's where coining you coining out, coining out. So they yeah. give you a coin. Yeah. And the coin is prevalent in the recovery world. You'll get a coin for 30 days, 60 days, 90 days a year, 5, 10. As a matter of fact, I've got Rob Eastman's uh, 10-year coin he gave me. He gave it to you. Yeah. And, oh, that's I, nice. and I use it as a ball mark uh, mm-hmm. when I'm golfing. When you're golfing. Okay. But they do a coining out ceremony. Uh, and so you get up in front of the, you know your entire class, uh, and each one stands up and says something about you. Sometimes it's nice. Sometimes it's not. Uh, just kind of... <laughs> Well, I'm just, I, I, I sat through a lot of them. And <laughs> it sounds awesome. Wasn't always nice. Yeah. You know, yeah. like uh, so much in the fact that I've seen guys stand up and go, we'll see you back here. You yeah. know what I mean? Like, oh, <laughs> wow. that's cold, bro. Yeah. You know, but I, I remember sitting there 
and they stand up and they say something about you and then you get to say something to your class and and, and kind of wish them well and as you go off into this next part of your journey. Uh, and the therapist will say something and the house manager. And then there's a song that you play. You get to choose it? You get to choose it. Okay. And I mean, I've sat through some dark stuff. I've sat through some Tool. Uh, you know what I mean? I'm <laughs> the, like, the, the Sober by Tool. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and, and all this other stuff. And yeah. so I, about a week out, I kept thinking, man, what song am I going to play? What song am I going to play? You know, it's got to be good. It's got to be good. I want them to remember it. Yeah. And the song that kept coming back to me was uh, by this, this young redhead kid. He's kind of this indie pop guy. His name is Brett Denon. And uh, I've played some of his stuff before on my social, and he's got a song called The Comeback Kid. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah, And I played The Comeback Kid, and uh, anytime I need a little pick-me-up, I play The Comeback Kid. Nice. And it kind of just takes me back to that place where it was five years ago, not knowing how it was going to turn around. Right. But I was like, I'm going to give it all I got. And I wake up every morning, I still give it all I got. Not every day I win, but most of the time I do. Yeah. And I'm and I'm doing it, and so. Uh, well, I love that you're using music to inspire you and give you a little boost, because I know that's like using a natural, um, you know, talent or skill to your benefit on purpose. You know, I, I like that because that's a natural part of what makes you happy in life. Always has, right? So uh, before I walk into the gym, I always get a walk-in song in my headphone. And yeah. I put it in and I walk in and I say hi to the girls at the desk. And I, I've got a family there at the gym that I see every morning. And I'll be like, hey, how are you? You know what I mean? And I show them what I'm listening to. And it kind of just sets the tone for the day. Yeah. So I guess what I'm saying is is that if you're looking for, you know, music is a great a great it is. tool yeah. for your sobriety. It changes your mood. It can improve your energy. I mean, you know. Uh, I remember high school football locker room, you know, listening to Eye of the Tiger before we go out to Ours was ACDC Back in Black, back in black. because we, have, we were the Ogden Tigers, and our colors were orange and black. Yeah. Dun, dun, there you go. Dun, dun. Yep. Dun, dun, so it dun, gets you pumped dun. up. Well, I think that's great. That's a good tool. And so, I, you know, and, and, and I tell you this. Unless you're listening to Tool. Yeah. Then it's a little bit of a down. <sighs> yeah. Just kidding. No, I think... <laughs> You know, you got to find what works for you. There's one for every seat out there, That's bro. That's right. You exactly. Know? So I, I, I guess I just tell you this because I, sometimes it's not all heavy in my life. Sometimes it's not all these aha moments. Sometimes mm-hmm. it's just the little things that I do to get me through the day and put a smile on my face you and keep me moving forward. You know what I think was a big deal is for both you and the lady who came up to you in the gym was that was awesome that she took the time to do that. I think I know from talking to people every day, people often have thoughts like that, like, oh, that guy puts a smile on my face because he's always dancing, he's always happy. But they usually don't go say anything. And I think you should. I, I, you know, when you have something positive like that to say, because it really can, it it makes your life better if you share what's inside of you with other people that, you know, that's positive. And of course, it boosted you up a little bit oh. to know that she was paying attention and, and that your happiness was making her happy. I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I put a little extra into my moves the rest of that morning. I bet you did. You know what I mean? Right, yeah. You know, just a little, yeah, a little <laughs> drop it. Yeah, you know there you mean? go. Looking drop. back at the mirror. <laughs> it was pretty cool, bro. Oh, uh, I need to get one of those people to secretly video you at the gym. Oh, I'm sure people did. Like, I uh, I thought at one point they were going to send it to the, to the podcast and go, you might want to check on your boy. He might not be sober. <laughs> He's dancing in the gym. 
It's a little too early for yeah. this. Yeah. yeah, I don't. He's doing the Macarena. Right. <laughs> this is not okay. <laughs> hey, uh, the other thing we like to do on the podcast is give you information, and that's where you come in, Doctor oh, Matt, yeah. because you always uh, you're a research based kind of guy. I like to research. Uh, yep. You're an academian. Academian? Sure. What, what is, how do you say that yeah, word? Yeah, you said it right. Okay. Uh, and so, what do you have for us today? So, today I have something a little different because it's kind of exciting. You know, we talk a lot about different modalities of treatment, like types of re- treatment that people have in recovery. There's 12-step. Yep. There's uh, meditation. Uh, there's religious-based. Cognitive behavioral therapy, yep. spiritual training. CBT. You know, there's all sorts of different things that are available in most recovery centers today. Mm -hmm. Not always the case. Back in the old days, it was often you just kind of came in, maybe got some medicine, did 12 steps. But now there are a lot of things. And so researchers, typically psychologists, they like to test, you know, which modality works and which doesn't. But I want to start off and we're going to talk to you a little bit about a cool one that we've talked about. But uh, Victor Frankel, you remember him because I gave you his book, Man's yeah. Search for Meaning. Oh, yeah. Josh loved it. It's his favorite book, right, Josh? I don't know if you gave me one. Yeah. I think I gave you one. I don't know. <laughs> I gave you both. This was last year. But okay. Yeah, look on, look on your bedside table. Yeah, well, right there is the outliers. I've got two yeah, chapters. You're still left. working on the outliers, yeah. all right? <laughs> uh, which will <laughs> never mind. All right, but here we go. Victor Frankel. He was a psychologist who actually lived through uh, the um, the uh, Holocaust. Okay, sorry about that. Lost okay, now I do second. remember this guy. Yeah, yeah. he's a holo- he was in a concentration camp and yes. survived. But he said between stimulus and response, there is a space. In that space is power to choose our response. In our response lies growth and our freedom. And I thought, when I read that quote, and then I happened later the next day to read this article, I thought they go together. You know, there is that stimulus and response, or we sometimes in recovery call it like a trigger, mm-hmm. right? So something happens, you get triggered, that's the stimulus. And before we respond, he's saying there's a little space, a little time where we can choose. And if we choose the right thing, we have growth and freedom. And what happens when we don't, there's relapse and, and starting the process all over again. But there's a random control trial. So that's the real deal in science. This comes from Journal of American Medical Association. So it's, it's good, solid, well-researched research. Uh-huh. And they tested mindfulness-based relapse prevention, which is a t- using mindfulness to help a people not relapse, against standard relapse stuff and 12-step programs. At six months following the intervention... Uh, mindfulness and traditional were more successful than the 12-step program. Really? Yeah. I was kind of surprised by that, actually. But one year, mindfulness-based program was more effective than both the other two in helping reduce drinking and drug use. Mindfulness is powerful. It is very powerful. And I remember when I was sitting in uh, rehab and I was there for 45 days, mindfulness was one of the tools they taught us. And the way they taught us to be mindful about things that were coming our way was to envision clouds and uh, your thoughts are clouds and they're passing by Mm -hmm. and you give them the attention that they need. And if there's nothing you can do about it, you send it on its way. And then the ones that stay a little bit longer and you can deal with, and then you deal with those. But what you're talking about is something kind of like what I've been talking to my kids about uh, because, you know, kids are teenagers and they're reactionary. Mm -hmm. And I always tell them, I said, you know, what you're given is just information. And then what you have is the choice to do 
something with that information. Right. You can either do this or you cannot do anything or you can do another thing. And, and that's what it is. And so the information is just the information. All you can control is how you react to that information. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And and so that's what, you know, I tell my kids is you got to get better at that. First, accept the information, mm-hmm. dissect it, look at it, and then figure out what you want to do from there. Try not to be so reactionary because my teenagers are reactionary. Most teenagers are, right? You know, so I said, let it come in for a minute. Take a breath. Make sure you got all of it and Mm -hmm. then decide where you want to go. Yeah, I think that's you and Victor are saying the same things. You have that moment before you react. You decide what you are going to do, what you're all about. And if you're informed by, you know, gathering information, your reaction is going to be positive. When I think about that, there's a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous that uh, one is too many and a thousand's not enough. Mm-hmm. And if you use it in that context, um, you have the choice for one, and you know that's too many. And once you take that drink, then you don't have the yeah. choice anymore and a thousand is off. So that, that the choice you have is right before you pick up that one. Because mm-hmm. the the one is the dangerous. The thousand you know is going to come if you do that one. So right. there's where the choice is. And yeah, so yeah. you got to go, nope, not yeah. today. Yeah. No, that's a great way to look at it. So anyway, uh, if, if a person's out there listening, wondering if mindfulness is anything more than just relaxing, it really is. And it's been proven, at least in this case, to outstrip some of the other common treatments that we have for uh, for recoveries. So. Before we get to our guest, if somebody wanted introduction into mindfulness, mm-hmm. where would you send them? Um, I, there is, I believe, uh, mindfulness.org is a place. Um, anything written by John Kabat-Zinn, who's kind of Z-I-N-N, um, it's kind of like what you use. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, John Kabat-Zinn uh, would be an author that if you wanted to go on and search his website and uh, find, you know, introductions into mindfulness practices, that would be great. Or you could download an app like Headspace or uh, Calm. Those are both good. And they, they have lots of mindfulness activities on there. Yeah. I don't recommend you cheating on this podcast, but I'm sure there's some podcasts out there on mindfulness. I'm sure there are. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there are for sure. Yeah. But ours is better to listen to for lots of reasons. 100. Yeah. Is what the kids would say. That's what they'd say. 100. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, our guest today is uh, Jesse Carlin. How are you, bud? Good. How are you? Uh, you've been sober how many months now? Uh, 11. And uh, every day get easier or does every day hard? It's a little easier. Yeah. You know, there's still struggles to come with it, but it gets easier as time goes on. 11 months sober. How young are you? I'm 22. We're going to find out about Jesse Carlin's story coming up. You're listening to Project Recovery. And welcome back to the podcast. My name is Casey Scott. That's Dr. Matt Woolley. We are the team that brings you Project Recovery every week. We're a team. I had thought about that. We are a team. We're a team. I'm Batman and you're Robin. All right. Yeah. Who's Josh? Josh, he's Alfred. Alfred, yeah. Yeah. He's back there on the controls making sure we're fed and everything's good. Okay, cool. Getting us out of trouble. I love being the boy wonder. I like it. Our guest today is Jesse Carlin. Uh, As you learned in the first segment, he's been sober about 11 months. Um, He's 22 years old. Yeah. Uh, Kind of a young cat. Yeah, for sure. (laughs) Uh, You told me that you did do some time in rehab. How many days you do? I did 90 days. Were you one of the youngest in rehab? Yeah, I was the youngest person while I was there, yeah. Now, did you find that hard or 
Um, at first, yeah, at first. Um, but then you know, I kind of got used to it, and I didn't really mind it. You know, you get a lot of like props for being like younger and just trying to do the dang thing. You know, because when I was in rehab, uh, I was forty five when I went in, and we had some younger guys in there, and they would kind of look at me like, oh, "I'm not going to be old like you and in rehab," you know. <laughs> and I go, "I wish I was young like you, because then I would have saved myself a ton of heartache." Yeah. So there was admiration on both sides, you know, and they were like, sure. "Hey, this is cool that you're you're finally getting." <laughs> getting the control of this thing. And I was like, well, that's the goal. Uh, Where does the story of Jesse Carlin begin? Um, Just like way back when I was, okay. So I was born in uh, Salt Lake. Um, You know, I lived with uh, my grandparents and my mom um, till I was about, I don't know, 11 or 12. How many siblings? None. I mean, I have half brothers and sisters and then stepbrothers and sisters, but no like full. Um, so, I mean, it was just really just me and my mom with my grandparents growing up. Um, what kind of kid were you? Um, you know, I was pretty like laid back. Um, I like to play video games all the time. So I was at home or just like hanging out with friends, you know, um, also just playing video games really. (laughs) So you sound a lot like my son. And when talking about the kids out on the playground and the football field, he refers to them as sporty kids. Were you a sporty kid? Uh, yeah, yeah. When I was in, uh, sixth and seventh grade I was playing football um after seventh grade though I kind of quit playing football why um due to me smoking weed I you know wanted to just smoke weed instead of play football so So that brings me to my next question (laughs) when was the first time you remember smoking weed or drinking alcohol or whatever it may be um the first time um I was like going into seventh grade so I was coming out of sixth grade going in seventh and um just with some friends um they're like hey we got some weed you know you want to smoke um and i was like sure you know why not let's, so it was let's as simple try as it. sure it wasn't like well, well i don't know it, it was at first and then they like the you know uh back in the day you know we didn't have like a pipe or anything so we just crushed up a can and they put holes in the top uh-huh. and um they had it already and they're like so do you want to and i was like uh, i don't know it went around once and finally got to me and by the time everybody had done it you know like i was just like why not you know I'll so, do it since everybody did it. <laughs> let me ask you, um, do you, did you feel like it was peer pressure? Did you feel like if you didn't, they would look at you different? Or at that point, was it just curiosity <laughs> that killed the cat? Um, I wouldn't say it's, it was 100% peer pressure. They weren't like forcing me, you know, and weren't like pestering me. But um, it was more curiosity to a point, you know, like wanted to fit in. But I knew like if I wouldn't have done it, they still would have been my friend. But, you know, I wanted to see what it was like, so. Yeah, I think, you know, I think we have this old-fashioned idea of peer pressure from, like, commercials. Do this drug or I'm going to punch you in the face, kid. Yeah, all that kind of stuff from the 80s, you know. But I actually think peer pressure exists more within us. Yeah. Like, we want to not be different. I think most people say what you said, Jesse, and that is that, like, oh, I know my friends would have been my friends anyway. But I just kind of wanted to do what everyone else was doing, plus the curiosity piece, you know. So, yeah, I think that's a pretty typical way people— First try, you know, drugs, alcohol, whatever. We've had a lot of people on the podcast the first time they did an opioid or the first time they took a drink of alcohol or the first time they smoked weed. uh, They felt something physically change inside of them. Uh, Did you have a euphoric feeling? Did you get high? Was there something that you went, huh, there might be something to this? Um, So the first time I did it, that experience, I didn't really get high, no. So um, I was like, okay, is this all it is? You know, I didn't really didn't really feel much so I was kind of confused so by the time came around for the second time I did it again you know 
Um, and that time I felt something that time it was like, I was pretty, pretty stoned, you know, um, a lot of euphoria. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I kind of like, I liked the feeling. I kept trying to chase that, you know, kind of chase the dragon on that one. Um, you know so. what? I think that's interesting. We should take a minute and talk about chasing the dragon. Uh, Because it's a a term that's often used in the recovery and addiction world. And uh, for you, what does chasing the dragon mean? Um, You know, just when I was in active addiction, just really just trying to get that like feeling from that you get from your first high, you know, Um, which is usually impossible to get that feeling again. But, you know, you'll try and try and try and try until you think you'll get close to it. and You never do. And I think that's the whole thing about that term, chasing the dragon. You're just chasing. Yeah. You're always behind. You're always trying to get back to that first experience. And your brain habituates so quickly to things like that that you're not able to ever really get there. So I think most people see it as kind of a frustrating thing. Like, for sure. you know, and they just settle for it being less and less powerful for them over time. And then you have to use more and more. So. So the second time you smoked weed, you got the euphoric feeling and uh, you kind of dug it. Yeah. Yeah, I did. And it wasn't like, you know, I wasn't smoking every day at that point or anything like that. You know, it was ever like here and there for a while. I mean, um, when you're in seventh grade, it's probably not in an abundance. Yeah, no, not at all. You know, it's just like when we could find it or get it somehow. Like usually it was like a friend getting into his dad's underwear drawer and yeah, <laughs> taking out yeah. a little bit of weed, yeah. you know. Uh, and, um, and so then you, you, you kind of just messed around with it. Yeah. Uh, when did uh, it start to pick up steam? Um, I would say that would be, that was probably around like ninth grade. Um, so I was smoking my whole seventh grade year, pretty much. I quit eighth, you know, I wasn't, you know, really digging it. I had a kind of a weird experience with it where I just wasn't comfortable. Um, so it took me a while to be like, get curious with it again, you know? And then when ninth grade came around, I was like, you know, let's, let's try it again. Why not? You know? Um, and so that's when it picked up for sure. Um, that's just with more friends where we had easier access to it um more people were smoking by then so it's just like you know did your mom you said you quit football to smoke weed in seventh grade Mm -hmm. did your mom or anybody else question like why aren't you playing football what are you doing a little bit but you know i was just like i just want to hang out with my friends you know just Mm. that was kind of my excuse was i just want to hang out with my my friends mom yeah yeah and I, i mean i really enjoyed football which sucks to look back on now but um at the time, I was like more invested in spending time with friends and smoking weed. So, and then you said you had a weird experience. Yeah, can you describe that? Yeah. Um. So I I don't know if it was just, like if it's just me that's ever had something like this. Probably not. You know. But so there was just one day where um we were smoking and I got like super high. Um, and we walked over to a park. Um. And I was just sitting there like I hadn't felt anything until I walked over the park and I went over and I closed my eyes at the park. And I, I don't know if I fell asleep. I don't think I did. But once I woke it, uh, opened my eyes, um, I was just insanely high. Um, and so I started freaking out because I had a football banquet that night. Um, and so uh, I started crying. You know, I'm like, oh, no, my family's going to find out. Like everybody's going to know when I get there. And every, all my friends are like, no, you're good. Just calm down. Drink some water. You know, it'll go away. You'll be all right. I'm like, OK. So I calmed down, get to my buddy's house, um, and it, it finally went away. Um, and we go to the football banquet that night, um, and I'm there for a few hours, and then out of nowhere, I just felt that same feeling of being high, like hours later. Mm. Um, and so it was like a really freaky experience because I'm like, this shouldn't be happening, you know? Um, Do you think maybe it could be a panic attack? 
Well, you know, with when when people smoke a lot, it's like you said, you'd been smoking quite a bit and you were really high. You can have what are called paradoxical effects or you know, effects that are opposite of what we think we would have when we're using a particular drug. And so actually you're definitely not the only person that's had experiences like that. And you get feeling kind of paranoid. Panic attacks can definitely happen. Sounds like you were probably, you you were rebounding because it was coming back later in the evening. And so you had probably had a lot of THC in your system. Okay. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. So I, yeah, basically it was just, you and know, that kind of scared you off of using it for a while. Yeah. And so then the next day I woke up and I just didn't feel right. Like it just, I don't know. I felt off for a while, like that whole year that I stopped, you know, after that it was just like, oh, I didn't feel a hundred percent, you know, correct. But, um, so it took that, a long time to kind of get out of the system. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know if it was like, I think it was just also in my head, you know, like in my head uh, after mm-hmm. to a point, um, where I just, couldn't get over that, how that happened. So, you know, finally after well, a while, I was like, you know, I'll try it again after I had gotten used to. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, that's the thing. There's a big difference between um, children and adolescents smoking weed versus adults. Um, both situations can have problems. But the thing that concerns me a lot about a seventh grader smoking that much weed is your brain is in hyperdevelopment. Yeah. You know, and it's it's one thing if an old guy smokes weed and and that causes impairment and things, but that's a fully developed brain already. But for a kid or a teenager, that's why sometimes the the effects are really quite strange because you you may be having a period of growth that the using the alcohol or the weed or whatever interrupts. And so it can be pretty scary actually for a lot of kids. So when do you make the jump from weed to meth and how does that kind of transpire? Um, so I was 16 when I first did meth. Um, which seems really young. I mean, I don't think there's any good age to start meth. <laughs> yeah, but probably not. Yeah. 16 seems way young. Yeah. Yeah. I was pretty young. Um, you know, I was smoking weed, you know, uh, you know, when I was like, you know, 14, 15. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started I doing acid here and there, um, and drinking a little bit. And I would say acid was probably like my first, um, struggle with addiction. You know, that was like a big one for me in the beginning was acid. Um, and so I just kind of was experiencing that for a while. And then I was with some friends, um, and this girl I was with at the time, um, we were just at a buddy's house. Um, and it started going around and I knew they were doing it, but they hadn't done it in front of me yet until this one day. It was like my 16th birthday. So I just tur- just turned 16 and um, <clears throat> they're passing around. They're like, hey, you want to hit this? You know, um, and I was like, I'm all right. Like, I'm good. Like, I'll just kind of sit back and watch. Um, and this is this part is, you know, kind of peer pressure again. But like you were saying, like yourself is peer pressuring you, yourself, you know, Um my girlfriend at the time hit it, right? So she was started smoking with them and then came back around and I was like, well, she did it, you know. Mm-hmm. I want to fit in with her, you know. You know, it was kind of like that, my first love type of thing. So I was like, okay, like, let's 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 try it. Um, and I kind of, I feel like right away I fell in love with it, for sure. After that first hit? Yeah, like, it was insane amounts of, like, euphoria and just I felt so good. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah, pretty intense. Leading up to that experience, did you have an opinion about uh, meth? Like, 
people who use meth and what meth is like, had you thought much about that as a drug? I hadn't no, like I didn't have like a strong opinion uh, about people that did it or anything. Like I wasn't like, Oh, these, these tweakers or anything, you know? No, it was, uh, it was, yeah, no, it wasn't a strong opinion. I just never saw myself doing it, you yeah. know? Um, was it a little scary? I mean, at first, yeah, you I, know, you I, get like the butterflies in your stomach and yeah, you're like, Oh, this is, this is a good happen. idea, you know? And then after that first hit, it was just off to the races. Yeah. For a minute with it. Um, then I ended up quitting for a while, but so how long do you think you, uh, danced with meth for the first time? Um, a couple months, not, not too long. Yeah. Um, and when you decided to quit, why did you decide to quit? So it's kind of funny. Uh, so that girl that, you know, my girlfriend at the time, um, she was doing it with me a little bit here and there, but then, you know, it was like, this isn't, you know, she didn't like it. She didn't like it at all. Um, and so she kind of was like, if you can't, if you're not going to stop, like we're going to break up, you know? And I was like, okay, like I would prefer to have you over, you know, drugs right now. So I, I quit doing that for a while. Um, and then we eventually broke up and it was kind of, I was like, okay, my time, my turn to experience. So after two months of using meth, uh, how hard was it to quit? It was easy. Yeah. The first, that first two months, it was easy. I just, you know, just didn't do it. If it was around, yeah. I was just like, no, I'm okay. I'm good. You know. And then you break up and now you're like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. It's my turn to experiment. You know, I was kind of down in the dump. So I was like, whatever, let's. Let's go out and just experiment with different things. So, and it, it it started with party drugs. After that, I hadn't gone back to meth just now yet. Now you're the only second person I've ever known that's used the term party drugs because my we've talked about it before. Uh, my kids were watching this show called Outer Banks, and they were doing drugs on there. And I was like, "Hey, honey, this what are you watching?" And she goes, "Oh, Dad, don't worry, they're just party drugs." And I go, "You know, party drugs are just drugs with the word party in front of them." <laughs> yeah, I mean. <laughs> They're just drugs. They're just you know dressed I mean? up a little bit. <laughs> yeah, you you can put lipstick on that pig, but it's still a pig. You know what I mean? So, I knew that was coming. What are party drugs to you? To me, it's more just like things that you would see in like the scene of like if you're going to the club or like you're at the bar or something or, you know, like even like raves or like concerts. But do you know? think those drugs only exist in those settings or do you think people no. take them home and, and, yeah. and do them in other settings as well? well you're talking about things like ecstasy. Ecstasy, and, MDMA, cocaine. Yeah. You know. Um, and those are, they're kind of associated with cl- the club scene and the party scene. Yeah. And it's... They're and, a bit more of social and I drugs. Think when, yeah, when people say party drugs, they mean kind of like a social drinker only has a drink when they're at a party. Yeah. Party drugs, like, oh, well, we'll do some ecstasy while we're at the party. The idea being like, oh, they're really, like what your daughter had sort of been indoctrinated with is like, oh, it's not that bad because I'm just doing it at the party and I'm not at parties all the time. But of course, we know that if you have that predisposition then that party drug follows you home. You're going to end up doing party drugs for yeah. a party of one. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. That's what it turned into. So. And so uh, <laughs> you kind of went out into the party scene and experienced and it uh, sounds like you did a little bit of everything. Yeah. Yeah. Cocaine, ecstasy, MDMA, um, was doing acid, mushrooms, you know, all, all that stuff. So. But you kept coming back to. Meth. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was doing that stuff for from like 16 to about 18 I was just doing cocaine and molly um and then one day my buddy brought home some meth and um 
he's like, hey, I don't really do this. Do you want to do it? Like, I'm not going to. So do you want to have it? He's like, because he knew my past. You know, I, he, know I'd, he knew I, I had done it. Sorry. Yeah. Sometimes I can't get the words out. No, I get it. <laughs> and um, I was like, yeah, for sure. Like, why not? You know, I'm already, Free on, I'm already on cocaine right now. So why not? Let's, let's do it. Um, and so that was like the first time I'd actually ever snorted meth. Um, and so I was, I uh, made some lines, you know, and did it. And yeah, after that, it was right back to it. I was about 18. And then you kind of just forgot about all the other drugs. Yeah. Yeah. Cause it was just so much more powerful of a high and just a lot cheaper, so much cheaper. So I was just like, okay. And, and by, so what is the attraction for meth? Uh, I mean, for a young guy like yourself, does it make you feel invincible? Is it, uh, I mean, what is, what is the draw? For me, it was just like how good I felt, you know, like, um, it's funny cause like the cocaine made me feel more invincible than the meth, you know, it was more like the euphoria of it and like, um, just the extreme high. I don't know. I'm, I'm an uppers guy. So it just was like, I just loved the feeling of being up <laughs> we're in the state of Utah. And there's, I mean, there's a whole culture of meth mommies because they get into meth because it gives them more energy and more time in a day to do all the things that they want to get done. Yeah. And so, I mean, for an 18 year old, uh, I mean, what, what are you looking to get out of it? Is it just to stay up later and party? Is it to take away apart lawnmowers? Uh, um, at that point it was really just to stay up and like, just like do random things. Like I wasn't really, didn't have any weird like projects I was working on. You know, I'd play video games a lot of the time. Um, so like that beginning point, like, um, when I started again was just like the feeling at first, you know? Um, and I think like I was saying before, like chasing the dragon, you know, like I was always just trying to get that same feeling like the entire time I was doing it. Plus you said you're an uppers guy. Yeah. And I think that's a good insight into you because people are different. And like, we've had some people come on the show and try one drug and they're like, yeah, I didn't really do it for me. But then I tried what became my DOC and it was like, that really hooked me, but somebody else might try that same drug and be like, yeah, it's not for me. So I think we are all hardwired a little differently to be, you know, predisposed to certain things, feelings that we want to chase. And, you know, for you, it was the uppers. Some people, they love that feeling of just being kind of off in never, never land. And so they're not chasing uppers. They want to do other things. And so, you know, or, or some people don't like drugs, but they love drinking. They love that feeling of, of drinking. So I think that probably is the explanation is, you know, that was probably part of your, your, um, the equipment you came with is just hardwired to love that upper feeling. But I think yeah. once you get into drugs, alcohol, whatever it may be, you know, where they get you is for the first little while, the highs are so high. I, you know what I mean? That first high where you're chasing the dragon is super, super high. Next time there, and then it becomes kind of the staircase down to a baseline. And then eventually you find yourself underneath the baseline. And so then you're just doing drugs to do what? Feel normal. <laughs> and that's what the yeah. crazy, you know, yeah. I'm, right, exactly. I'm doing drugs just to feel normal. Just to try to get back to normal. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about it before. I remember at one point when I was active in my addiction and drinking just way too much, my mom calls up and she's like, this is a BS, son. And I go, what? She goes, you're out there partying, having a good time, and we're all paying the price. And I remember go, mom, does it look like I'm having fun? 
Because I can tell you right now, I'm not. I'm doing whatever I can just to get through the day. Fun left a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, we're not even near fun. Yeah. And so did you find that happen to you? Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, it took a little bit longer, too, like, after that, um, probably till I was, like, 20. Um, by that time, I was doing meth every day. And it was it was not fun anymore. <laughs> so just... what did that do to your home life and your mom and your grandma and your family? Um, it affected them a lot. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was never really home that often. I would come home just to sleep. Um, and I haven't gone into like, you know, deep conversations with them about it, but I know that it affected them quite a bit, especially my mom. Um, cause I mean, when I was home and coming down or like didn't have any drugs, she had to deal with me just going into like full blown rages out of nowhere. Um, which, you know, is also hard for me. Like in the moment you're like, why am I doing this? Why am I being this way to my mom, you know, and treating her so bad. And then like, you finally get your fix and you're like, sorry, like, you know, and there's not a, no sorries can make up for that. You know, like you can eventually like rewrite your actions, but in the moment the saris don't change anything no so. and so how long are you out uh running and gunning on the streets um from when i was 19 to when i was 21 yeah and what did uh i mean the whole 16 to 20 now is you know her 21 was did like, you finish high school i didn't no, no i dropped okay. out yeah and that usually like when people get it heavy into use in their early to mid teens, it's pretty hard to follow through with high school. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, so how does a guy without a high school education and how much money do you think you're spending on a day on drugs? Mm, It depended. Like some days, you know, like probably just 20 and then other days, you know, you could maybe come up with like 80 and spend 80 on it for me personally. Um, And where do you get that cash? Um, for a while I was selling, selling just all sorts of different drugs, um, acid, molly, meth, cocaine, weed, all that stuff. Um, so I was selling all that and kind of, that was like just to support my addiction for a while. Mm -hmm. Um, and then eventually it turned into like stealing and all that stuff. You know, you kind of just trade for drugs. So let's say you're 20 years old Mm -hmm. and you look in the mirror What's looking back at you? Um, just not a happy person, you know. Someone's not happy and just like doesn't want to keep doing what they're doing, but just is like, you know, doing it because they're addicted. That was how it was for me, you know. Like I was just, yeah, I was in a low place, you know. At was, any point, did uh, family members or loved ones or the state offer uh, any kind of help? Um, yeah, so I didn't really like let my family in on all the stuff that was going on until I went to rehab about, uh, 10 months ago. Um, but you know, I got arrested when I was, uh, just, I just turned 19. Um, and I got arrested and luckily I, I only was in jail for a day, which was surprising cause I had everything I was selling on me. What did you get arrested for? Um, I got arrested and charged with possession of a controlled substance, but they, they came and got us because there were people arguing at this car wash we were at. And so somebody called about a noise complaint and they pulled up on us instead. Um, and we had just smoked some weed. So yeah, they, they searched the car and all that. And found a cache of drugs. Yeah. A lot of cash and a lot of drugs, probably like a couple thousand dollars worth of drugs. Yeah. 
Wow. And so you go into jail for one day. Yeah. Yeah. Went to jail for one day, thankfully. Um, and so that was pretty crazy. I thought I was going to be in there for a while. Um, and they let me out on pretrial because it was my first charges I've ever gotten, like as an adult or I'd never had any as a kid. So they let me out on pretrial and that's when they were trying to get me on probation and have me do treatment. Um, and then those next two years, like I just didn't, didn't follow through. I just kept getting high. So. Wow. So, I mean, all of this at such a young age and uh, just kind of the wild, wild west for you. Yeah. And you're just out there running and gunning and trying to feed your habit. Yeah. Where does you, where do you come to a rock bottom and what does that look like? My rock bottom was like right before I went into rehab. Um, and I actually went out of my way to talk to my family and ask for help. Um, cause I kept getting warrants put out for me and all that. And they were wanting me to go do like some good, good amount of jail time. And I wasn't really wanting to do that, you know? Um, and I was just like, in psychosis, you know, not terrible psychosis, but every once in a while I'd get real bad and just like have like terrible mental breakdowns. And, you know, I was just over it at that point. Like, let me ask Dr. Matt. He said he wasn't in terrible psychosis, but I think anytime you're in psychosis, it's probably <laughs> yeah. not good. There are degrees. That is true. But I would say so psychosis means we're hearing and seeing things, uh, experiencing sensory experiences that aren't real. Uh, we have delusional thoughts about things that aren't really happening. But to the person who experiences them, it's awful. It's scary. Uh, you feel out of control. You don't You don't know what's real always. It's a pretty scary, miserable experience. And in fact, you know, we have a whole diagnostic manual of mental disorders and you can diagnose, you know, uh, psychosis due to schizophrenia or major depressive disorder or secondary to substance abuse. And so it is common when a person uses a lot of drugs, especially I even though your DOC was meth, we'd probably say you had some what we call poly substance abuse problems where you were just down to try whatever for a while, at least there. Right. Yeah. And so mixing all those different kinds of drugs on a regular basis, um, you know, it damages your brain. And so that it doesn't function on all six cylinders like it should, you know. And so it, it's um, I don't know what your experience was like, but when I've talked to people who are no longer struggling with psychosis, they will say that was just such a scary time in their life. How about for you? Um, it wasn't too bad, to be honest. Like, I never had, like, extreme, extreme, like, auditory or visual hallucinations. Um, it was more just, like, seeing, like, shadow people or hearing, like, elevator music in my head. Like, yeah. Well, that is awful, actually. <laughs> yeah. Like, for hours, you just hear weird music. Um, you know, you'd sometimes see, like, people that aren't there. And, you know, like, there's been experiences where it had been worse than others, um, you know, it was worse before I got to my, um, my rock bottom. And that's usually when I had been up for like six or seven days. Um, and that just blows my mind when we talk to people who <coughs> have been, you know, abusing meth and staying up for many days in a row. I can't even imagine that. Yeah. It's, what was the longest you stayed up for? I think seven days. And I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I was like, I need sleep and, right and now. <laughs> that sleep deprivation can be deadly actually yeah. for a person. Yeah. So seven days is the longest, but currently you're, uh, you know, in some form of psychosis. Uh, you've got warrants out for your arrest. Mm -hmm. So you're talking to your family and uh, that's your rock bottom or does it go so down further? Yeah. Yeah. That was kind of like my rock bottom. Like I was just had been struggling with it since I was 16 and I was just like, I'm 
you know, because I don't see a good life coming from this. Like at that point, I was stealing people's cars and stealing stuff for people, trying to sell drugs to make money just to support my habit. Um, and I just, you know, it wasn't a life that I wanted to live anymore. Like I don't want to end up in prison or like dead. So I was like. And that's the that's the crazy world of drugs and alcohol and addiction is that, you know, you're an addict, but now you're a car thief to feed your addiction, you yeah. know? And so uh, we've had a lot of people who've been on the podcast who ended up going to uh, jail or prison for being a car thief. And they were like, I'm not a car thief. I'm an addict. Right. But That's I'm not getting any help for, for my addiction. addiction because right. they all think I'm a car thief, which you are a car thief. But yeah, but you didn't wake up in the morning and think, you know, I think I'll be a car thief today. Right. No, yeah, not at all. Wasn't like my chosen profession shall be <laughs> thievery. So, yeah. you know, when we have people on the podcast and they talk about a lengthy uh, journey into their road of addiction, uh, a lot of times they find themselves crossing lines that they've never said they would cross before. Right. And here you are at such a young age. Did you find yourself crossing boundaries that you thought you would never cross? Yeah, a lot. A lot of boundaries that I didn't think I'd ever cross. Uh-huh. And ha- ha- walk me through that. Um, I mean, just to start, like with drugs, like I didn't ever see myself doing meth. And then that happened. And then once I got hooked on that, I was like, okay, well, I'll never start selling drugs. You know, and then that went out the window. You know, and I'm like, okay, well, I'll never, like, you know, take guns with me and go sell drugs and, like, maybe rob somebody. And then that happened, you know. Like, I didn't go to the point of robbing them, but, you know, like, you it's an uncomfortable feeling to, you know, walk around with a gun on yourself and, you know, not have ever wanted to be there. And see shadow people. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of funny because me and my buddies, we would sit at, like, the window with guns, like, thinking people are outside. Like, you see, like, lasers coming inside. <laughs> you're like, but The paranoia, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that was something. And then you never think that you're going to start stealing cars and stealing from people. You know, I never stole from my friends or my family, but um, just random people or like out of people's cars or like whole cars, you know. And yeah, it's it's scary, you know, for and sure. So and how did you start feeling about yourself knowing that you were doing all those things? Not great. Yeah, not great. You know, I was like, I wouldn't want this to be done to me, you know, while doing it to other people, you know, and like. You kind of sit there afterwards and you like think about it and you're like, dang, like they're going to go through it when they wake up in the morning and all yeah. their stuff is gone, you know. But so you like, have that feeling of guilt and empathy. You're like, I'm hurting these people. Yeah. But my, you know, in at the same time, your addiction is driving that behavior. And it's that justification. I, yeah. And I think that's the torture that a lot of people who who aren't addicts or don't know somebody who's been an addict they don't understand like that person who broke in and stole something from your car, they're a tortured soul. Like they don't usually want to be there. No. Right. And they know, like you're saying, Jesse, like, man, I know I'm going to put this person through the ringer tomorrow morning when they wake up. And cause I've been that guy who wakes up and you go out to work and you're like, ah, my window's smashed and my stuff's gone, you know? Um, but yeah, how, if we can help people get the right treatment, it frees you up from having that, that discordant life that you're living of knowing you're hurting people, but feeling like you have to do it anyway. It's, it's a tough, really tough place to be. So yeah. you talk to your parents, you talk to your family mm-hmm. um, and decide you want to do rehab. Yeah. Yep. And how does that conversation go? Um, so by that point, my mom, she, she knew I was struggling. Like there would be times where I, you know, I'd been up for a while and fall asleep with like my pipe out on my bed. 
um, or just drugged out and she would come in and the next morning she didn't want to get into it. So she'd be like, next time put your stuff away, you know, before you fall asleep. Um, cause you know, at that point I was just, I'd go into rages. So she didn't want to get into that with me, which I feel bad about. Um, so I kind of, when I was like, okay, I want to go to rehab. I talked to my mom, my mom talked to my grandma, um, they were pretty happy about, you know, for me about it. Like they wanted it to happen. And so they got me into uh, 7th Street uh, pretty quickly. Now, what is 7th Street? Me. That's one I haven't heard of. Um, it's a, 7th Street is just a treatment center. Uh-huh. Um, it's over on 7th East and like 20-something South. Um, and I liked it. It was it was good for me. It's a 12-step based program. Um, you can do 60 days to just complete or your full 90 to graduate. And I did, I did my full 90 and then continued all their outpatient services. So I'm, that's what I'm still doing right now. And so when, when you go into that, because we've had people who've gone to their first rehab as uh, because of an ultimatum or just because it seemed like a way to get off the streets and, and catch a little rest and, and, and regroup. But it seems like you went in with the right intentions. This was your idea. Yeah. Yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just went in wanting a different life out of it, you know, like I was tired of living like that, especially being so young. Like I knew that if I get it now and I can get a handle on it and start changing my life now, like it'll be way more worth it in the end, you know. And so did you have an aha moment in there that you were like, OK, this is making sense? Because I, I mean, I've told people when I went to rehab, a lot of the information that they tell you is information that you've been given Throughout your whole life. I mean, it's even starting from dare or from kindergarten, do the yeah. next right thing, be a good person oh, yeah, yeah, and, and, yeah. All, and all this stuff. The one so thing the that basics, they, right? the basics, yeah. but we forget them. Oh, definitely. Uh, the thing I liked about it is they gave me tools to help me cope because alcohol became my only coping mechanism for good, bad and everything in between. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but they gave me, you know, breathing. They gave me yoga. They taught me that I could have fun without alcohol. Uh, you know, they taught me about sitting in your own stink, if you will, uh, and just letting that pass and it won't be forever. So did they give you some good tools there to help you get through this? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, I think one of the biggest things for me was like, um, you know, when I was younger, I was able to like kind of express myself with my family. It was a pretty open, you know, um, family. So like we were pretty, you know, expressive with our emotions. Um, and then once I started being around people, I couldn't do that with, you know, I just became more like, you know, um, secluded and like drawn back. Um, and so being there helped me like be able to like be like, okay, it's okay to when I'm around people that I'm comfortable with and that are good for me, like I can open up again and like let them know what's going on and how I feel. And I think that's been one of the biggest like um, things for me is like knowing that I have people I can reach out to and being comfortable to reach out like when I need help, you know? Um, Cause there's a lot of times when, you know, like people will say like, oh, the, the, the phone will like weigh a million pounds when you need help and you just can't pick it up to call somebody, you know? And, and for me, it's, it's a similar situation, but I it's, I'm happy that it's easy for me to pick up the phone and call when I need help. I mean, I'm impressed with this young man. I love the fact that you were thinking about your future. And I think that's that's key to your story because a lot of people get into their, you know, significant drug abuse and they lose sight of a positive future. They don't think, they don't believe that they can have. I mean, how many people have come on and said, "Oh, I just didn't think I'd live till I was 30." Yeah. You know, past 30 or, you know, I I don't I couldn't see a future for myself. 
And I think that shows the power of belief and intention, right? Like you believed like, man, like you said, if I can just get this fixed right now, I'm young enough, I can have a really good future. But if I don't get it fixed, that future is going to be terrible. And I think that power of belief and wanting something better for yourself is key. I also think, and and I, this is just from my own experience, and it's what I was kind of hoping, I think people in their 20s uh, think they will age out of the addiction, if that oh, makes yeah. sense. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. That, hey, this is what I'm supposed to do in my 20s. I'm supposed to experiment. I'm supposed to do this. And right. By the time I'm 30, I'll be married and have kids. And it won't be, be a responsible. Be citizen. responsible. Yeah. It won't mean that much to me. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, and but so when uh, that addiction gets a hold of you, it doesn't matter how old you are. Right? Yeah. yeah. And, but I think a lot of people think that they will age out of it. That's why I'm so impressed with Jesse that at such a young age is like, hey, uh, this is this is not a right. road I want to go down. Right. And if we could stop people from going, because let's be honest, majority of the people have been on the podcast, their most active addiction years were 20s and 30s. Probably. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, I think it all started at a young age, but, you know, that's when they were really in it. Yeah. 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 And for a guy who 20 to go like, yeah, no, I'm out. I'm done. I, you know, there's got to be a better life. Yeah. So talk about that. What, what have you envisioned for yourself going forward? What do you want to do with your you know, life of recovery? Um, you know, I do want to go back to school, get my GD. So that's something I've been working on. Um, I want to go to a trade school or something, you know, figure out like what kind of trades there are and what I would want to do like career wise. Um, and it's really like, I just been focusing on like that school stuff and all that, you know, um, I had a job, um, and I recently got let go just cause they couldn't work with my schedule with treatment, just having to go in and drug test. I couldn't work their full time hours. Um, so I'm in the process of looking for another job right now. But you but, prioritized your, prioritized your treatment. Yeah. Because you knew that was important, huh? Yeah, for awesome. sure. And That's um, with probation and everything, like I got to finish that too. So it's it's because I prioritized it, but also because it, it's a requirement for me to finish it. So it's you know. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know they say well, in, it's awesome. they say in recovery and addiction, anything you put above your sobriety will be the first thing you lose. Yeah. And so you've got to prioritize. And, it makes sense. Yeah. And the requirements and by the laws, I mean, if you don't do that, they come arrest you. Yeah. And then you can't work anyways. Well, I like that you have short-term goals. You're staying in treatment. I mean, I, I think that's a short and long-term goal probably. You're getting your probation done. Uh, and then you want to go on with the GED and find a trade. I mean, I think those – I have a good friend who used to be uh, the president of Kansas Psychological Association. We went to graduate school together. And uh, he's an impressive guy, but he started off not getting his GED till he was in his mid twenties, just because of you know chaotic lifestyle growing up. And um, I often try to tell people, I'm like, it, it, you're never too old to kind of dial down on getting that education and finding a better path for yourself. And uh, if my friend Jason, who's kind of a goofball, can get his PhD. Uh, after not getting his GET till he was 25, I mean, anybody can. You know, it's awesome. So, Jesse, the thing I love about you is you've lived a long life in a short amount of time. So, for those out there listening uh, who have maybe loved ones who are, you know, active in addiction right now, what advice would you give them? Um, check out USARA and the Alano Clubs. I love that. Um, I love USARA. They're great. Yeah, they're, they're a good uh, resource for family members, for sure. Um, and you know, like 
hope, you know, you got to hope for the best in those situations as a family hope is, member. Hope is, is, is something we talk about a lot on this podcast because hope is uh, sometimes all you have. Yeah. And sometimes it's all you need. And it just depends on where you want to put your focus and energy. And hope is actually a studied concept in psychology. So if any listeners want to read the research on how powerful hope is, it will blow your mind. Check out a guy named C.R. Snyder with an S, Snyder. Mm-hmm. Um, his research is fundamental in understanding hope can absolutely transform a person's life. Well, Jesse, I want to say thank you very much for stopping by and sharing your story. I think you're an amazing young man, and I think you're going to do anything you put your mind to as evidence of your sobriety right now. I would love to have you back on in a year or two to see where you are and see what's going on. And if we can ever help you out, if Dr. Matt needs to write you a letter, he'll write you a letter. (laughs) Whatever we can do to help you, because I'm impressed by you, and I I, I think you're a wonderful young man. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Dr. Matt, last thoughts on uh, well, Jesse? Well, ditto, ditto to everything you just said. We'd love to be there for you. Uh, we'd love to follow your journey. Uh, there are a lot of people that listen to the show that take a lot of inspiration from people like yourself that are willing to be brave and come on and share their story. So thank you uh, for them because I'm sure you've helped a lot of people by sharing your story. And I think a lot of parents don't know how to interact with their kids. And I, I love that you are redirecting people to USARA because that's a great resource for parents. So thank you for coming on. Yeah, thank you guys. And thank you for listening to another episode of Project Recovery. And in case you forgot, Project Recovery is what? It's a KSL podcast, Casey. That's what I'm talking about, Dr. Matt. Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. of this program are for informational purposes only. The program is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician, licensed therapist, or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition. Never disregard professional medical advice or delay in seeking it because of something you've heard on this program. KSL does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on the program. Reliance on any information provided on the program is solely at your own risk.